0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Thing of sun lotion. So go to page1books.com, page one with the number one. So page1books.com and check out my page1books summer bundle. Buy it as a gift, at housewarming, if you actually go somewhere, or just give it to yourself. Everybody needs a treat. We've had a long spring. <laughs> page1books.com. This is day five, the last day of this week for my July book blast. And today is Fiction Friday. I'll be releasing a few episodes of novels that I think are pretty pretty awesome and can't wait to introduce you to these authors. I'm doing the July Book Blast, Because I interviewed a lot of people during quarantine, and the books came out during quarantine, and I would love them to get the airtime they need now to get the word out. Also, a lot of these books are great beach reads, and if you have any time this summer, I would love for you to hear more from these authors directly. So please enjoy Fiction Friday, and stay tuned. This whole week was Memoir Monday, Debut Tuesday, Beach Reads Wednesday, Thrilling Thursday, and now today, Fiction Friday. I hope you've had a chance to listen to a few this week, and enjoy this one. Bye. Jennifer Style is the author of two previous books, The Woman Who Fell from the Sky, a memoir of her experience as a journalist in Yemen, and The Ambassador's Wife, a novel about a hostage crisis that was also inspired by her own experience. Her latest book is called Exile Music. She currently lives in London with her husband and daughter.
1: Hi. <laughs> Hi there. Wow, I was too big for a minute. No, 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 you're great. How are you?
3: I'm good, thank you. Are you Okay. I'm okay. I'm sorry. I'm usually okay. very together. It's just been one of those days. No, um, I get it. But. <laughs> your book is so good. I'm so glad. I can't believe you've reached out to me directly and I hadn't read it. And it's, you know what? It's written in such a, like a vibrant, refreshing new way. I feel like I've read a zillion books about this period of time and the Holocaust and everything else. And this is like a whole different thing. So anyway, I just, I'm loving it. Just so you know.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry you've had such a short time to read it.
3: No, it's okay. I did what I could, but I will come back to it because the characters are like embedded in my brain now and I'm really excited. So why don't you tell people watching and listening, because this will eventually be a podcast as well, what Exile Music is about and what inspired you to write
1: it? Sure. So Exile Music is based on an underexplored slice of World War II history. During World War II, there were between ten and 20,000 Jewish refugees in Bolivia. And a lot of these were artists and musicians. And I lived in Bolivia for four years and met some of these refugees and their descendants. So I got the idea for the book when my husband came dashing home from work one night, full of, of energy and said, you know, I just had the most interesting conversation with the Austrian consul. And he's, you know, did you know that during the war there were, you know, more than 10,000 Jewish refugees here. And I hadn't known that. We'd only just moved to La Paz when I found this out. So soon after that, I met the son of one of these refugees who was born in La Paz the year that his parents arrived from Poland. His mother is from a small town in Poland that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but this town was pretty much wiped out by the Nazis and almost no one survived and his mother suffered horrific things while she was there she was she was hidden below a pharmacy her 2-year-old went blind in captivity and then was murdered by the Nazis along with her parents oh. and her husband had been conscripted by the Russian army and he was away with the Russian army for All of the war, and after the war, somewhat miraculously, they were reunited in Poland. And she gave testimony to someone who has archived it in a Holocaust museum in Israel. So John, my friend from Bolivia, gave me his mother's testimony, which you know I read in full, and he has not read it himself. Unsurprisingly, it's too traumatic for him to read. So that was where the story started. I began wondering. What it must have been like for these very urban professional musicians and actors and artists and others coming from Vienna to suddenly find themselves in the middle of the Andes living at 12,000 feet. I just thought, you know, not only is there a difference in culture and language, but a completely different. Sorry, our doorbell suddenly Yeah, oh, That's okay. <laughs> I'm hoping that my 10-year-old will get it, but sorry about that. So it began with me imagining what it must have been like for these refugees to arrive in La Paz at this time. And I also, at the time, my daughter was around three or four, and she was very busy creating this imaginary world that was quite complex. It had not only a queen, but it had a president who was a hermaphrodite so that this person could equally represent men and women. That was her solution to that problem. So she she was creating such a complicated world and she had maps of it and drawings. And I thought if I were a little girl growing up in Vienna while the Nazis were closing in on me and my family and I, and I wasn't able to, to understand or cope emotionally with what was going on, I might be tempted to retreat into an imaginary world. And so I started with those two things, with my friend John's story and with my daughter's imaginary world, and started with this little girl in Vienna who I I knew I wanted to arrive in Bolivia young enough so that she could still adapt more flexibly than her parents could.
3: Wow. Well, now it all sort of makes sense a little. I mean, in the book, it seemed impossible that you hadn't been to some of these places, right? Like your knowledge of, I'm like, she couldn't just be making this up. You must have been there. So what what brought you and your
1: family to Bolivia? What were you doing there? Well, at the time, my husband was, was working for the European Union. My husband is British, and he worked for the British Diplomatic Service his whole life and then was on secondment to the European Union when we lived in La Paz. And... Then, after Brexit, went back to working for the British Foreign Office, which is Get what it. brought us to Uzbekistan. So, wow.
3: And how did you begin writing to begin with? Tell me a little more about your memoir because now I want to go back and read like everything you've written before. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you. So, I was working as a journalist in New York City. And I got an email from my high school boyfriend saying, how would you like to come train journalists in an impoverished Southern Arabian country was how he phrased it. And I wrote back and said, well, you know, could you just give me the name of the country and tell me a little bit more about this? And he ended up coming to New York. And and I said, look, I have a good job in New York. I can't just run off to Yemen, but I could come for my remaining vacation days. I had about three weeks left. So he said, that's great. He talked to the editor of the newspaper in Sana'a, Yemen, and who said, yeah, bring her over. And I said, well, I'll do a training for three weeks. And that's all I can spare. So I went over to Yemen, having never been to the Middle East before, having taught myself a few words of Arabic in one of those books called Learn Arabic in 10 Minutes a Day (laughs) kind of things, you know. So I went over to to Yemen and met the staff of this newspaper who amazed me. I had never felt more welcome anywhere in my entire life. I'd never met people who were so eager to learn and to work for me. They treated me as if I were visiting royalty. I mean, the Yemenis were the most hospitable, warm people I'd ever met. And so the owner of the paper said, I love what you're doing with my reporters. Would you be willing to come back as editor-in-chief of the newspaper and turn it into the New York Times? And I said, well... I've never worked for the New York Times and I'm not sure anyone, you know, in the right mind would want me to run a newspaper. I have no managerial experience. I I've never run a newspaper. I've been a journalist for more than a decade, but I hadn't actually run a newsroom let alone in Yemen. So, I went back to New York, thought about it and realized that actually I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in the same little gray cubicle. So, I moved back to Yemen, took the job which was the most exciting thing I've ever done. It was incredibly challenging, but also incredibly rewarding. And I made such close friends with my reporters that I'm still in touch with almost all of them today. And so that first year I spent working with them was so interesting to me. And I learned so much from them. And I wanted the world, you know, this was 2006. And you know, like now, there's a lot of bias against Muslims and a lot of bias against Yemenis. And in, hardly anyone I met in the U.S. could place Yemen on a map. So I just thought, I want people to know my staff. I want them to know these Yemenis. And I want them just to meet them and get to know them and realize that the media reports aren't always accurate. And so, so that, that's how I came to write my first book. Which was, which was a memoir of that time I spent running that newspaper. And I ended up, because I ended up meeting my husband in Yemen at the end of that first year, I then ended up living in Yemen for three more years. So my daughter was actually born while we lived there.
3: Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you were a journalist. You lived in Yemen for all this time. You wrote the memoir. And then you switched to fiction and wrote The Ambassador's Wife. How did that happen? And when did you come up with that idea?
1: <laughs> well...
3: Do you mind that I'm asking you your whole life
1: story here? I'm happy to tell you. So once I met my husband, he was at the time the British ambassador to Yemen. So once I moved in with him, I was suddenly plunged into a deeply surreal universe for me, never having had any contact with diplomatic life. Suddenly, I, you know, we had bodyguards and we had Scotland Yard sleeping in our guest rooms and people, ministers visiting from the UK. And it was just such an interesting and crazy world that I was suddenly in touch with. And I thought, I have to write about this, but I can't write a memoir because I don't want to destroy my marriage right away.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I Um, want to make it die a slow and painful death. (laughs)
1: No, I don't want to make it die at all. No, I'm kidding. I I know. I'm kidding. I'm I'm kidding. That wasn't even funny. All right, go ahead. So that's all right. So that's why I started writing fiction. I thought I want to place something in this world so I can write about it, but from a fictional point of view. But I also was kidnapped while I was six months pregnant when I lived in Yemen. So, and that was my third year. So that experience inspired the opening scene of The Ambassador's Wife, which starts with the kidnapping. And that scene is pretty much how it happened to me. And then, you know, having been kidnapped, I then came to the UK to give birth, but moved back to Yemen with my infant daughter, which some people thought was a bit crazy. But then my husband was attacked by a suicide bomber and we were evacuated. Oh, my gosh. So... That's the nutshell version.
0: (laughs) Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
2: Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcasts.
3: Wow. Well, I'm glad I asked because that's not most people's nutshell version. (laughs) Okay. Wait, back up for a second to the kidnapping. So how do you get over something like that? How do you go and I don't know how it ended or started or whatever, but I'm assuming it must have been traumatic for you in some way. How do you then pick up and go on? Or what was it like in a few, you
1: know, the mini version of it? In a way, I think that the fact that I was pregnant actually saved me because I was with, first of all, I was with four other women who were amazing. They were cool as can be. They were protective of me because I was pregnant. A lot of them had lived all over the world. They'd been held at gunpoint before. This was not their first experience like this. And so they were so calm and helped me. And there there was a moment at which, you know, I thought, we're all gonna die. They're gonna line us up and execute us. And you know, my husband's gonna lose me, our daughter. And around, you know, in, in my panicky phase of the kidnapping, I started having cramps and I thought, I'm gonna lose her. And I don't want to. And I, I don't wanna miscarry in the middle of a country with questionable health care either. So I said, I, all right, if I'm going to keep this baby in, I have to calm down. I just have to calm down. So I started doing, thankfully, I had learned how to do yoga breathing. And this is the one time it was really useful to me because I started doing that breathing and doing a little chant to her, just saying, stay in, just stay right where you are. You're cozy. It's not safe out here. So you just say, <laughs> Stay right where you are. And I think that saved me. Like I'm not sure I would have been as calm had I not been afraid that if I didn't just learn how to relax, then I would I was gonna lose the baby. And then being with these other women who were incredible and you know, I had lost my phone in a scuffle with this sheikh who was holding us hostage and borrowed a phone from someone. Fortunately I'd remember my remembered my husband's phone number. And you know, he quickly got the government involved with getting us back. And he was utterly when i called him you'd think i called to tell him you know what was for dinner he was like <laughs> okay do you have a sat phone with you is mohammed there could i talk to him who's holding you ha- you know where, where where did you drive blah 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 i mean it was completely and when i got back i said to him weren't you worried and he said worried i didn't have time to worry i had to get you out and so I mean, he just goes instantly i think this is his diplomatic training you know when there's a crisis which there are a lot of in diplomatic life. You just have to go straight into solving the problem. You don't have time to freak out. And I've never seen my husband freak out in a situation of stress. So I think that helped. And also these other women, I think just knowing that they were there with me helped a lot. I invited them all for dinner about a month after this happened. And one of them hadn't even told her husband that it had happened. And I thought how did you explain us being gone for an entire day? And, yeah. and this was in, interesting, you know, insight into someone else's marriage. But wow. But just, I don't know. I think, I think, you know, the other women were one of the things that kept me calm. I mean, the UK also, you know, they had me write up my experiences. And that's the other thing that helped is that right after it happened and I got home and had had a bath, I wrote down every detail of what happened. Which is why I was able to come up with the first scene of the book because I already had it written down in first draft form. You know, because I had to turn that into the office so they were aware of exactly how it had unfolded. Wow! Oh my gosh!
3: And now Anne Hathaway is going to star as you. Well, I think
1: actually, unfortunately, that option has expired. Oh, okay. Um, so, if anyone out there is interested in the option, <laughs> it's now reavailable. Okay. Um, these sort of things, I suppose, happen all the time with film options. So. Yes,
3: I hear this yeah. over and over and over again. I know.
1: <laughs> I, was, I was pretty excited about that, so very sad. I'm sorry. Saturday. Yeah. Well, you know, there are worse things that could happen, especially now. So I just interviewed Wally Lamb on the
3: same show last week, and he— wow. Yeah, it was really awesome, but his option— lasted 15 years for I know this much is true and they tried to make it all these different ways and he kept getting disappointed and then he finally took the option back and now has just made it into a limited series that just aired last Sunday oh gosh I forgot to watch last night well anyway the Sunday before this Sunday, and it all worked out. So it took a while, but he's like, I'm glad because this is the form that it should be taken. This form wasn't even available then. So i to say, you never know.
1: <laughs> you never, yeah, you really don't ever know. So yeah, it could happen. We'll see. And you still travel all over the place. You're in London now, and you lived in Uzbekistan. And Yeah, well, I, I am in London at the moment, but we don't live here. We actually okay. live in Uzbekistan, but... About six weeks ago, two months ago, two months ago, I think it is now, we were evacuated because of this pandemic, even though there were no cases in Uzbekistan when we were evacuated and London was an epicenter of the pandemic. They, you know, I think the, the foreign office thought, well, if we do get sick, they wanted us to be near British healthcare. So that was their thinking in sending me and my daughter back here, but we didn't have anywhere to live. So, in the middle of this, we suddenly had to find an apartment with two days' notice, and which we did miraculously through another writer because writers are wonderful people. And so, we we have somewhere to stay now, but we don't know how long we're here for, or when we can see my husband again because he's still in Uzbekistan and the airspace is closed. Oh my gosh! So we're we're apart until Uzbek airspace opens, and also he's quite busy at the moment. So. Your life. I mean, your whole life sounds like a
3: movie. I'm glad you keep writing. I can't wait for the next. So you must be working on something else, right?
1: I am. Actually, I'm I'm on the second draft of the next novel, which is completely different from anything I've ever done. And is I'm really loving writing. It's mostly in dialogue, which is my favorite. Someday, if I ever grow up, maybe I'll write plays. But for now I'm doing this. It's part of, I'm doing a PhD at the moment. And so this is part of the dissertation. For that. That's right. I read that you were doing a PhD and I
3: kept like, yeah. I was like, does that really say expected 2021? Could she really be getting her PhD <laughs> now in the middle of all of this? How unbelievable.
1: Well, this, like- wasn't, this wasn't going on when I started, but yeah, but actually, you know, it's been because the university of Birmingham has a distance learning option for the for this. And I talk to my supervisor every month and he's just the most incredible man and writer. That it's for me it's a huge luxury to do a PhD because to have someone whose job it is to read what I write every month is, you know, that doesn't happen to most writers. Usually you're just sitting alone in the dark, which is how I've wrote my first few books. (laughs) So now I have someone to talk to along the way and it's just great. Wow. So So. wait, tell me a little give me
3: a little bit more about this dialogue driven novel.
1: Sure. So it's basically it's about an underground, kind of gay slash queer underground in Bolivia, almost exclusively lesbian. So it's it's about this community living underground. And that again is based on something I heard about when I was in Bolivia. Even though homosexuality is officially legal, it can still get you killed in Bolivia. So a lot of people who come out are thrown out of their families and abused in all kinds of ways. And some of these people have sought refuge in underneath the city, in tunnels underneath the city. So I, again, was wondering, I wonder what that's like. And I've just loved these women that have formed this underground community. I also, you know, the underground genre seems to be so male-dominated. You know, books like Jack Kerouac's Subterraneans and Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere and all these other books about the underground seem to be these very kind of male undergrounds and all these revolutionary undergrounds are often male. And I thought, what if it were a female space? And how would women try to create revolution without violence?
3: Wow. I am like, you're, I'm following you now forever. You're I'm like, I can't wait to see what you write. I'm so excited.
1: Wow. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? I do. I mean, this is advice based on my own experience. I guess that's inevitable. But for me, what helped me the most was moving somewhere that made me profoundly uncomfortable in a lot of ways and forced me to question a lot of the assumptions I had about how the world worked, how human beings worked, how culture worked. And I've never been the same. I mean, since I left for Yemen in 2006, I haven't lived in the U.S. And living outside of the U.S. for that long, I've learned the ways in which the U.S. shaped me and that other people are shaped in different ways. And I feel, I hope, I, I'm always gaining a broader perspective on kind of from thinking about people more globally than from purely an American lens. And I mm-hmm. think that's really a useful thing to do as, as a writer, is to have to flounder around in somewhere completely foreign and figure things out. And, you know, you start to realize things about yourself you wouldn't realize if you didn't leave your comfortable space. Interesting. Wow. Well, if we can all ever travel again, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Not so easy at the moment. Um, but that's okay. I
3: feel like I'm floundering in my own home every day. So, you know,
1: <laughs> lots of yeah. material in this
3: time. But <laughs>
1: yeah. you're You are not alone. You're not yeah. alone. Yes.
3: <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for coming on my podcast and this show and for Exile Music, which thank I can't wait to finish and for... Introducing me to your to your really interesting, one of a kind life. So
1: what a treat. Thank you so much for having me on. It's it's been a real pleasure. Okay. Take care. I hope you see your husband soon. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.
3: Thanks so much to listening to Fiction Friday, part of the July Book Blast of Moms No Time to Read Books. I hope that you found some really great reads this week. All 5 days I've launched tons of episodes so that I can entertain you and you can connect with stories and just feel a little better in the world knowing that these stories exist and that these authors are out there. So, I hope you enjoyed all of these fiction Friday episodes and that you had a great day and I hope you have a really great weekend. And come back next week because I'm doing one more week, one more five days, I should say, of another July Book Blast week and I'll have five new fun days then and then back to normal. But anyway, you can have a little like binge podcast fest or something. (laughs) Anyway, have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you liked this episode, please follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and sign up for my mailing list at ZibbyOwens.com so you can always hear about the latest things I'm up to. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much to Page One Books for sponsoring today's episode. I hope you'll all check out my summer beach bundle at PageOneBooks.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.